Good morning to everyone. Again, welcome to our assembly here. So good to see everybody. It may not feel like a new year anymore. New newness seems to wear off very quickly, no matter what it is. And although this is our first Lord's Day of the although this is our first Lord's Day of the new year, perhaps now that we're a weekend, already just seems like another old year. But Whenever I have an opportunity to speak early in the year, I often like to try and speak about something that um, encourages us, exhorts us, challenges us to think about the new year that we have, the new year, and the things that we would like to accomplish. And so I've been thinking about that for the past several weeks of what to speak about this morning. And um, back in December, we finished up our study in the book of Hebrews. My own brother Matthew had our final sermon. He did an excellent job wrapping up that book. But there was one particular verse, and I'm not going back to re-preach that section. Um, but there was one verse in there that he spoke about for a little bit that I thought was really impactful, that I thought that I've been thinking about, and that I think makes for a good passage to launch us into a thought this morning. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 18, and this is after many of the admonitions that are given there in chapter 13, the Hebrew author says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. That's somewhat of a strange verse. Now, it's not uncommon for a spiritual leader or preacher, Paul, if he's the one that we're writing this letter, to ask for the recipients to pray for them. Uh, Paul asked the Thessalonians and other Christians that he wrote to to pray for him and his companions. That part's not so strange. But that part really struck me, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. And in light of the Hebrew letter, I thought that that's a very powerful thing for a leader, a spiritual leader, to be able to say. Now, I'm sure that there were probably people that read this letter that weren't overly thrilled with some of the things that the author had written to them. There were some very hard things in this letter. There were some challenging things in this letter. This was a letter, as we know from going to the book of Hebrews, that was written to Christians who were probably suffering, who were beginning to face some persecution, for whom the outlook of future days was not all bright and cheery, because there was probably worse persecution on the horizon. This was written to people who were tempted to go back to Judaism because it would be safe and because they could escape some of this hardship and persecution. And yet they are challenged to not do that. They are exhorted to remain faithful. They are rebuked for spiritual immaturity. The book of Hebrews is not an easy letter for us today to work through and study and understand, imagine what it must have been for the original recipients. It wasn't an easy letter to receive. And yet the writer, when he's finished, is able to say, even though this has been hard, even though this has been challenging, even though what I'm asking you, commanding of you by inspiration, of course, is that you suffer, but be faithful I have a clear conscience and called you to that. In our society, I believe leadership struggles, and this is across the world, I'm not speaking about here, but just in general, leadership struggles because 
Exactly what the Apostle Paul told Timothy would happen has, has happened. People have itching ears. People prefer to heap up for themselves religiously and politically and in every other realm. They love to lift up people that will just tell them what they want to hear. They love to follow people that will just kind of smooth their egos and that will make them feel good about themselves. A rise of motivational speakers that are very talented and very exciting and also very good at making you feel good about yourself. People love to listen to those types of people. But often when you listen to such speakers, there's not a lot of substance. And what substance there is certainly isn't challenging. And so with that in mind, when Matthew taught on that and made a few comments about that verse, what stuck in my mind is myself as a leader, as a preacher, as a teacher, can I say at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the year, I have a clear conscience about how I've led. To our elders, I hope that they are able to say at the end of any period of time, I have a clear conscience about how we've led. Parents, are we able to say we have a clear conscience about the way that we're leading our homes? And if we do have a clear conscience, then undoubtedly to have a real clear conscience, biblically, that means we're going to have to lead sometimes, not always, but sometimes in challenging ways. So I want to think about that for a while this morning. How often we see in scriptures that following Christ is a challenge. It's not just a bed of roses. It's not just a, a pathway to a carefree life. The Christian life is a joy-filled life. It is a wonderful life. But it is a challenging one. And as individuals, as leaders in our families, as leaders in the congregation, we need to be willing to not just encourage, to not just make each other feel good, to not just compliment, but to challenge one another. So I want to think about that for just a little while this morning. First of all, let's start with our greatest example in all things, Jesus. Now, Jesus was a challenging figure. One of the things that just stands out to me more and more as I read through the New Testament, as I study passages in Jesus' life, just how often Jesus challenged people. We could do a whole lesson on the challenging things Jesus did and the things that he said. Think about some of the questions that he asked, some of the ways that he answered questions, the timing of which he would say certain things. Jesus did not take it easy by anybody. Challenge people. Just a few verses or passages that we can think about. Uh, Mark 12, verse 29 through 30. Now this is Jesus quoting an Old Testament passage, but he's affirming it. And it says, Mark 12, verse 29 through 30, Jesus has been asked what the greatest command of the law is. He says, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I think we all know that. We've heard that verse. I've preached on that verse. Others have preached on that verse. We know that verse very well. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's an easy verse to memorize in some ways. It's a very challenging verse to fulfill. Because what is God not asking for, demanding? 
And what is Jesus affirming is still the case. This was true in the Old Testament. This is true in the kingdom of Christ. What does Jesus expect of us as his servants? Everything. Not some of our time. Not a part of our talents. Not a majority of our devotion. All of it. The way that we parent. The way that we work. The way that we're entertained. The way that we spend vacation. The way that we spend our money. Our lives belong not mostly, not in part, but entirely to our Savior. He owns us. We belong to Him and He demands everything. That's a verse that's all well and good to read and quote and, and say, we just we do, owe all. That's another thing entirely to really think about and review our lives and ask, have I given Him all of my heart? Have I given Him all of my strength? Is my purpose serving Jesus? That's a challenge. That's the challenge God has given to his people from the beginning of time and that Jesus continues to give to us. And that's not always easy. On Luke chapter 12, somewhat of a lengthy reading, we'll read verse 26 through 33. Jesus has this to say about discipleship. Now most people, when they're wanting to gather people to them, they try and say as much as possible that will encourage people to come to them. They don't want to say things that will alienate. They don't want to say things that will uh, upset or discourage or maybe frighten people away. Listen to what Jesus says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete, complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Most people that want followers give quite a sales pitch as to why you should follow them. We're going to get a lot of sales pitches over the next 11 months. It's another presidential election year. I'm sure there are many other elections that will take place this year. And we're going to hear sales pitch after sales pitch after sales pitch as to why they are the right candidate and the other person is not. Jesus doesn't give a sales pitch. He says, you want to follow me? I come first. Not your mother, not your father, not your children, your siblings, your friends, your spouse. I come first. That's asking a lot, isn't it? That's demanding a lot. That doesn't end there. He says, not only that, but you have to be willing to take up your cross daily. You ever wondered how strange that phrase was to the first people that heard it before Jesus was crucified? And they thought, what is, what is he talking about crosses? 
surely this is symbolic and metaphorical. It is in a way. And then Jesus showed just how far that can go when he literally bore a cross for us. And while he was our Savior, he would not be the last one that would have to endure a cross. There were many Christians in the first century that would literally have to fulfill what Jesus called them to endure. Who would be crucified themselves for their faith. Or beheaded or thrown to wild beasts or any other number of awful and unimaginable deaths because they would not renounce Jesus. Some of those people had to live under that threat every day until the threat was finally realized. That's the extent to which Jesus calls us. So yes, and I'm not making I'm not saying that to make light of the sufferings that we endure, because the persecutions that we may have to endure are real. We have to realize how far we must be ready to go. And if we must be ready to literally pick up a cross and be crucified for Jesus, surely that means we should be ready every day to be mocked. We should be ready for sometimes even our closest of friends to distance themselves from us. We should be ready to give up that career and that job that's separating us from God. That's not an easy call. It's a challenge. But it's the one that Jesus calls us to. In line of that thinking, you know, Jesus not just saying what pleases the masses. One of the most amazing scenes to me in the life of Jesus is two days. The first day, when he feeds 5,000 people, miraculously, with just a few loaves and fish. And that is a beautiful, beautiful scene. It's the only miracle, aside from the resurrection, that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's an important miracle. I was listening to a book the other day about uh, Psalm 23, and the author made some incredible comparisons between the great, sh- the, the good shepherd of Psalm 23 and that scene in particular where Jesus is having the people sit down on the grass and he's feeding them, he's providing them. He's doing so in the presence of his enemies. This comes right after Herod has thrown a banquet, which ultimately led to the beheading of John the Baptist. Compare that to the banquet Jesus is doing. It's a beautiful day. A beautiful picture of the good shepherd providing for his people, of Jesus' power and the sustenance that he provides. If only the story would end there. Because John tells us in John chapter 6, the next day when Jesus has crossed over the sea and the people come and they find him. Remember, there's a crowd of 5,000 just men. This could have been 10, 15,000 people. They come to him the next day. And instead of congratulating them on coming and seeking them out, instead of bolstering them up, Jesus rebukes these people for just wanting more food. Not a smart move if you're just wanting to attract a following. These people, by the way, the day before, had wanted to make Jesus their king. They were ready for insurrection. And today he rebukes them. 
And then he has a discussion. We don't have time to go through all of John chapter 6, but he has a discussion that they have a hard time understanding. He talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and he has a bunch of hard sayings in this chapter. Beginning in verse 60 of John 6, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What does Jesus do at this point? Does he back off and say, Well, I'm about to lose these folks? No. He says, but Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if he were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were and who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I don't know what day it was. Let's say Monday, over 10,000 people are following you. Tuesday, got your small little group because they all left. Why? Because Jesus never backed away from the truth. Because he wasn't about a crap. Because he wasn't about just pleasing people and tickling ears. Because Jesus would always challenge his disciples. And the truth is, sometimes people are not looking for a challenge. They are not looking for growth. And they leave when things get hard. But what about the apostles? We could talk more about Jesus we talk about the time when the woman of adult, adultery was caught, and we see grace, and we see mercy and forgiveness, and we also see Jesus say, go and sin no more. We could talk about the rich young ruler who came. He was a very good man. He did a lot of good things, and Jesus, what did he require of him? Go sell all that you have. That's quite a challenging proposition. We could talk at length about Jesus, but let's think about the apostles and the New Testament for a while. Let's read Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. What does Paul, by inspiration require of Christians. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, sometimes there have been Christians who have had to make a very real sacrifice in their death. But many, many more Christians have had to live their entire lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What are we trying to attain here by the grace of God? Nothing short of absolute transformation. That word transform, if I remember correctly, is the same word that's used in the gospel accounts when it speaks about Jesus being transfigured. How much different did Jesus look to those disciples, those three that were with him on that mountain? He looked otherworldly. That word is the word from which, that Greek word is the word from which we get the word metamorphosis. You look at a caterpillar and you look at a butterfly. It's a huge difference, isn't it? Why? Because of metamorphosis. Because it has transformed, it has transfigured. And that is the goal for you and me. God doesn't call us to sit in a pew once a week. 
God doesn't call us to be generally good people like most of the people in this county. God calls us to be transformed, to be like him, to look like him, to think like him. Obviously, we are not going to attain that in this life, and we're going to make a lot of mistakes. How often do we even take seriously the challenge of trying to be like him? How much of our life is devoted to being transformed daily, more and more, into a child of God? We won't go into specifics, but just think about the books of the New Testament after Romans. First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, letters of Paul, contain some of the most stinging rebukes in all of the New Testament. Letters that were written to people that Paul loved very much, and yet he didn't. He wasn't super soft about it. He challenged them. He rebuked them, sometimes very sharply. The book of Ephesians is a wonderful book. It's a book about frequently about unity. There's a lot of lessons, but one of the great ones is unity, particularly to Jews and Gentiles. Imagine how challenging that book was. We think we have a problem with racism in America. In some ways we do and we have, as every country in the world has always struggled with this. But imagine being a first century church that's made up of Jewish people and Gentiles who hate each other and have their entire lives. And now you're trying to find peace and you get this letter from Paul that's not justifying any type of racism or prejudice, but it's calling you not to just get along, but to be a family in Christ. That's a challenging letter. The book of Philippians is a joy-filled letter. It's a letter that calls its people to joy. And it's written by a man, Paul, who was in prison, writing to people who were suffering persecution. While you're suffering, be joyful. The book of Thessalonians, both of the Thessalonian letters, written to younger Christians who were suffering intensely, and yet they were called to be faithful. The letters to Timothy and Titus were written to men who were laboring as evangelists. And probably not in the easiest of circumstances. Timothy, considered to be a young man, is given an incredible burden to try and lead and be an example. Titus is supposed to establish leadership in an entire island of people. Philemon is written to a man who has been wronged by another. And he is written to by Paul to accept Onesimus back, to forgive him. And to receive him as a brother. Hebrews, of course, we've spent half a year studying people that are wanting to turn back to the familiarity of the past are exhorted to endure persecution. The book of James, after the introduction, starts off this way. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. What do you think one of the main themes of the book of James is? Peter speaks frequently in his letters about submission. That's always a challenging topic. And suffering. Jude is a short book, but a fiery one that exhorts us to contend for the faith. To contend, to struggle, to fight, to wrestle for truth. In the book of Revelation. There are several verses in Revelation that could maybe be considered the theme. But to me, one of the best is Revelation 2, verse 10. Something we've already talked about. Be faithful until death and for the original recipients of the letter of revelation that's exactly where their faith was going to land them 
facing suffering and bloodshed. <coughs> and yet they were called to be faithful. Because they were called to trust that in the end God is going to win. It's a challenging letter. It's a challenging book. New Testament is challenging. Christianity is not a road to an easy, pain-free life. It's not a road to riches. It's not a road to guaranteed health and prosperity. It is a life of endurance and growth. And when you think about those two words, neither of those things are easy. <clears throat> if you've not, if you're not a runner, by the way, I'm not, as is obvious. And you were to get out and try to run. How far do you think you could get? If you go out and you jog. If you went out this afternoon and you started jogging, how far do you think you could get? A mile? Two miles? Five miles? If you've not been training, you're not running a marathon. I can tell you that much. Now, if you want to run a marathon, you start running today and you run tomorrow and you run the next day. And that one mile turns into two miles and turns into five miles. But you know what you're going to feel between now and the point to which you can run 26.2 miles? You're going to feel a lot of pain. You'll probably start to feel better over time too. But that's not going to be an easy process to build that endurance. Your muscles are going to hurt. There's going to be times when you're running and your lungs burn and every part of your body feels like it's on fire and you're wondering, why am I doing this? Because I'm building endurance. Growth is not an easy process. How do you think they have the saying, whether it's in weightlifting or anything else, no pain, no gain? Growth is not easy. Even children who are just growing naturally, sometimes you take them to the doctor and a checkup and the kid says that their legs are hurting. And what does the doctor say sometimes? He says it's just the growing pains. Even our bodies, when we're not stressing them out through exercise or other things, I mean, think about it. It's amazing to really think about now, I haven't grown in height from outward some, but I haven't grown in the past 20 years. In that same time frame, a baby will go from an, an infant to a full-grown human being. Their bones are growing. Their muscles are growing. Their, their, their internal organs are growing. You know what? Sometimes even that process, natural as it is, causes pains in children. There are growing pains. And we are encouraged to grow spiritually. We are to go from babes in Christ to mature manhood. And that's not always going to be easy. And sometimes it will be difficult. And so we need leaders who will challenge us. We need to be open to elders, evangelists, to teachers, who will be willing to challenge the congregation as we serve. Don't get me wrong. It is good to encourage. We should encourage one another. But to speak bluntly for a moment, I don't think we have a problem of a lack of encouragement. And that's a good thing. We also need to be challenged. As leaders, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but our role is not to make everyone feel happy. Our job is not to entertain, and our job is not to be some form of a spiritual motivational speaker. 
And as members, we should not expect that of our leaders. Our responsibility as leaders through example and word is to edify and equip the body for faithful service to King Jesus. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Again, as members, we need to be willing to be challenged. Not only should we challenge ourselves, we should be grateful for leaders who will challenge us to grow, who will exhort us to grow, who will come along when we're not doing what we ought to, and in love and gently, but also firmly say, you can do better. Would you take that? Would you accept that phone call? David or James says, you think you can do better. How would you feel about that? Would you get mad? Would you get upset? Or would you be thankful to have shepherds that care about you and love you enough challenge you to grow. When we follow leaders when they rebuke us, when they guide us in our faithfulness, being challenged is not always easy or pleasant. But again, think of all those New Testament letters. It's one thing to read them through 2,000 years later and study them and dissect them and pick them apart. Try and imagine sitting in an audience just like you are today and me or David or James are reading to you a letter written by the Apostle Paul that says the things in this letter, in these letters, as sharp and as pointed as they are sometimes. That would not be a comfortable assembly. But how important it was. So a few things. In the last few minutes, as we think about challenging, I want us to think about the perspectives. I want to talk about the perspectives of where we can find challenge and where we need to be challenged and where we need to do some challenging. And I'm not going to give a lot of specific examples because really, instead of starting the year off with do this, do this, and do this, I just want to put this thought in our minds. And each one of us is unique. Every one of us has unique situations. Perhaps this will help each of us think about what we can do this year. But first of all, I want to think about the personal perspective. Now, we all need help. We need guidance. We need friends. We need mentors. We need leaders. But the truth is, at the end of the day, if we are not willing to challenge ourselves, no one else is probably going to be successful at challenging us either. It's much like helping. You've heard the phrase, you can't help someone who won't help themselves. We've seen situations like that. I'm sure all of us have, not we? Or you try and help someone, but they won't do their part to help themselves out. And so your help is useless. Well, the same as goes with challenging and exhorting growth. David and James could be perfect elders. And the teachers could be perfect teachers. But if you won't challenge yourself to grow spiritually, they're going to have a hard time doing that for you. Even the Apostle Paul made a point that he disciplined himself. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25 through 27 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one being in the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Notice the Apostle Paul. Well, I've always loved it because it, it just makes sense. He doesn't run aimlessly. There's a point. It's not like a boxer that's just beating the air. But he says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Practices self-discipline. Now, is that easy? No. It's challenge. It's difficult. But he challenged himself to be controlled, to be disciplined, so that he could be what he ought to be. Every one of us needs to take a look at our life as an individual and determine the areas where we need growth. Determine the areas where we need to challenge ourselves. Now, how might you challenge yourself this year to grow in the Lord's service? Could it be in, in your Bible? And by the way, I encourage us to really challenge ourselves, not to say, yeah, I'm good here. Maybe, maybe you've never read the Bible through before. That's your challenge this year. Maybe you've read the Bible through every year for the last decade. Well, instead of just doing that again this year, how can you increase? Maybe instead of just reading it through, you need to focus on some studying this year. Whatever it is, and again, this is where every one of us is different, challenge yourself to grow in your knowledge of God's Word this year. What about prayer? I'm sure all of us, or at least most of us, could challenge ourselves to be more devoted to prayer. What about our attendance at the assembly? What about being closer with church family, with showing hospitality, with serving others, with our giving, with sharing the gospel? What about with teaching men publicly? What are some ways, and again, we could go on, but I don't want to, said I don't want to talk about too many specifics. I just want to give us ideas of where can we grow, but we have to challenge ourselves personally. But then I want us to think about our families. Parents and fathers in particular, we have a responsibility to ensure that our homes are godly places. And as we grow individually, our families should be growing as well. But we often have family goals and challenges in some ways. Maybe we have a savings goal for the family for a, uh, a vacation that we want to take. Maybe we have chores that we work on together as a family. Now, I'm getting ready to set up a challenge for a few of our kids to turn their light off every time they leave. It's a pretty simple challenge. But we have challenges to challenge our kids, don't we? We challenge them to do well at school. When they come home with these, we don't say, ah, that's okay. We challenge them to do better. Challenge them at sports. Hobbies, challenge them to be disciplined, to learn to be adults as they grow older. And that's all well and good. We should be doing those things. Do we challenge them spiritually? Do we expect growth in our children when it comes to loving the Lord? Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice what that verse does not say. It does not say, fathers, make sure your kids go to church. It doesn't even say, fathers, take your kids to church. Well, that's part of it. Absolutely. 
But it says, fathers, bring up your children. It's not the mom's job without you. It's not the preacher's job, the elder's job. It's not the school's job. It's our job as fathers to bring up our children. In nurture, in admonition, in instruction, in discipline, are we instructing our children? Are we helping them learn godly discipline? Now, sometimes when we think of children and discipline, we just think of spankings or grounding in the negative form. And sometimes those are necessary. Are we training our children to be disciplined, like Paul was disciplined? What are some ways that we can challenge our families this year? Maybe more time reading and praying together. Maybe just spending more time together. Maybe attending services more frequently and more consistently together. As a side note, I know that we have several uh, in our congregation who are married, uh, who have a spouse who is not a member or is no longer coming. And I know this isn't easy, and you know your situations. They're in a sermon about challenges. I want to offer you a challenge and an encouragement. If you have a spouse who is not attending or is not a member, this is a perfect time at the beginning of the year, perhaps, to sit down and remind them of your faith. And have one of those conversations and let them know, reiterate how important your faith is to you and how much you would love for them to share that faith. Or maybe even just to share with them that you would love for them to attend church services with you. Say, I'm setting a challenge for myself to be more faithful. And I would love for you to be there with me. And they may say no. Maybe they say, we've talked about this a hundred times. I'm tired of talking about it. Or maybe when you challenge them, they'll rise to the challenge. And they'll say, okay. And who knows what happens after that. Wouldn't it be great to try? Maybe we set time for visiting church family together with our family or visiting the sick together. There's so many ways we can challenge our families. And then as a congregation, I wanna, we've talked about this a bit already, but I want to say a bit more. Are we ready to challenge and be challenged? our elders, James and David, I think we all should say thank you. I appreciate that so many men in their prayers uh, during our services thank the Lord and pray for James and David. I hope that over the years we will develop more men that will be able to share that burden of leadership with them. But I also ask of you men, as we look onto a new year, please challenge us. Guide us. Oversee us. I'm not an elder, but I certainly know that it's not easy as a church leader to challenge people. I know how much easier it is to let things slide, to let things go, to be worried about if this rebuke or even this slight admonition is going to push someone away. 
And I don't envy that from the men's elders. Because that falls on your shoulders more than any of us. But I simply ask that you challenge us. To myself as an evangelist, I have to challenge myself more. And I ask you as congregation and elders to challenge me. Let me know where you need more help, where you see opportunity. To our teachers, I challenge you to grow this year in your teaching. We have some wonderful teachers. I'm not making, I'm not saying these things because I think there is this huge lack. I'm saying these things because if we get comfortable and we settle in, that's where problems will start. We have to keep growing. And so teachers, challenge yourself to deeper, better study, to impactful teaching. Those of us, all of us men that feel that stand behind this pulpit from time to time, we need to realize we, our job is not to fill a teaching spot once a, count, once a month or every other month. Or, it's not to fill a spot. Your role as a teacher is not to give James or David or myself a break. Your role as a teacher is to equip and to edify this congregation. Remember Ephesians 4, verse 11. Teachers are listed there. Your role, your job, your challenge is to help this congregation. Is your teaching doing that? Will you dedicate yourself to accomplishing that in your teaching? How seriously will you take that role this year? To those of us as the congregation to members, what will we do to follow, to support and to encourage the leaders of this congregation. I ask everyone here to do, myself included, to do exactly what was requested in our opening text, Hebrews 13, verse 18, pray for us. I know, again, and I appreciate this so much, that in the public uh, prayers, so often um, our elders are prayed for, I and my family um, serving as an evangelist are prayed for, and Thank you so much for that. I don't know what you pray for at home or how often. I don't need to. But I ask that if you aren't, if you could continue to pray for our elders, that you would pray for me as your evangelist, that you would pray for our teachers. Pray for us. We must lead with a clear conscience that we so desperately need your prayers. Will we all be able and willing to accept being shepherded and guided, even when it's challenging? Now that picture in Psalm 23, and I hope to give a lesson on Psalm 23 or a few lessons in the near future. It's a beautiful psalm, and it's so comforting that sometimes we forget the picture. Sometimes the sheep has to be corralled back. Sometimes the sheep has to be picked up and carried back. Sometimes it has to be knocked on the head a bit with that shepherd's staff to get it back in line. And those are all actions of the same loving shepherd as the one who feeds and nurtures and cares for. Are we really willing to be shepherded and guided, even when it's challenging? Even when the growth that our elders gently steer us towards is difficult, can we commit to listening and follow. I want to, as we end, 
Let's go back to Ephesians 4. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers have been given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I want to read the rest of that passage, verses 13 through 16. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So many things in that passage. But I want to notice especially those first three words of verse 13. Until we all. Who is most important in this congregation? You are. Every single one of you. James and David's job, my job, the teacher's job, is to not care for those who seem to be the spiritually most mature. It's not to try and care for only those that seem to be the weakest. Leaders are challenged with growing together with everyone. And that's a challenge in and of itself. Because it's so easy to approach church, we often say. It's just kind of this activity we do. We show up on Sunday, we worship correctly, we get out, we go home. And if we're really faithful, maybe we come back another couple of times that week. There's so much more. And we all need to be involved. We all are expected to grow to maturity. We all are expected to be serving Jesus. We all are expected to be bearing fruit. And for that to actually happen, we all have to be working together. We do so lovingly. We do so truthfully. So this year, I hope that every one of us will make the commitment. And individually, we may have different challenges, different ways that we need to grow, different temptations to overcome. But collectively, what could 2024 look like if we all, from the very beginning here, challenged ourselves to be an integral working part of the family that is the Springer Road Church of Christ? I don't know. I'm excited to see what this year can hold. If we'll follow the biblical patterns, if we'll be challenged, and if we will challenge one another, what new heights we might be able to reach that the Lord is gracious enough to give us another year. We'll bring the sermon and the study to a close there. I hope it's given you some things to think about. I hope it's challenged you in one way or another.